This is good. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Before we start, let's take a moment. Let's uh, have a word of prayer and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for the word of God and asking, Father, for your help as we see your handiwork in history, uh, that, Father, you would um, foster our discussion and you would enlighten this book to our eyes, to our memories, Lord, to our uh, everyday lives to realize just how amazing uh, you are in your grace with your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you have your, um, everybody should have one, and I know um, you've got some blanks at the top. I want to make sure that everybody's got the three blanks filled in so that we can start from that point and we can launch forward. One of the big things that we talked about last week was why do we study the Old Testament? There's often an argue made, argument that is made of, well, I'm a New Testament Christian, uh, you know, we're part of the church. We know the church started in Acts chapter 2. We're on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And anyway, when I read the Old Testament, it all seems kind of foggy and cloudy, and I don't really go know what's going on, and I'm not Jewish, so it's kind of strange for me and, and all this stuff. I want to give you three things that the New Testament says about studying the Old. The first one is it gives you an example. It gives you an example so that you do not crave evil. The Old Testament teaches us principles so that we will not be cravers of evil. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 6, you actually see in 7, 8, 9, and 10, he gives you four examples of certain evils uh, that people are in. I'm not asking you to turn there now since we did that last week, but it's an example so that we will not be cravers of evil. Number two, it is an example for our instruction. It is an example for our instruction because the end of the age is near. It instructs us because the end of the age is near. And number three, it is instruction through perseverance and encouragement of the Scripture. It's very important that you get that. Through perseverance and encouragement of the Scripture, through perseverance and encouragement of the Scripture, we would have hope. By studying the Old Testament, it actually cultivates hope in God's people. Now, sometimes we we'll never think that because we're separated from it, but perseverance and encouragement in the Scriptures, we would have hope. Yes, Terry? Okay, sure. It's instruction through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we would have hope. And that in particular is Romans 15.4, what Romans 15.4 tells us. So very important stuff. So, some notable facts about Deuteronomy. Real quick, does everybody have a Bible that you can write in? Is everybody comfortable with that? Okay, never, never hurt you to do that because your notes are always with you when you turn back to that section. It's good stuff. So let's go through this. Notable facts about Deuteronomy. Number one, this is the third most quoted book in the New Testament behind Exodus, which is the first one, and then Genesis, which is the second one. It is also quoted 350 times in the Old Testament. In fact, we're going to get to a section. Let me just say this real quick. If you don't understand Deuteronomy, you can't understand the prophets, okay? You can't understand Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. You can't understand any of those guys. And the reason is, is because everything that they are standing up against and everything that they are pronouncing against disobedient people is all in alignment with the curses that God gives upon the children of Israel if they do not keep the law. That's very important to understand. So you will never see a prophet 
or God come up with something out of nowhere that he gives to a prophet to say uh, that is totally foreign from the book of Deuteronomy. He provides blessings for following him and cursings for not following him. And so whenever Ezekiel, I think about Ezekiel, they're actually trying to worship idols behind brick walls so that they think that Yahweh can't see them uh, in that in that capacity, which is so strange because anytime somebody's involved in sin, they lose the attributes of God in their thinking. They don't think about that, that he's omnipresent, that he knows those things. Uh, they actually try to hide that and, and God brings Ezekiel, and he allows Ezekiel to look through this wall, and he says, see, they're, they're doing this stuff. They think they can hide from me. What in the world are they doing? All of those judgments that come upon them are all things that are completely pronounced at the end of the book of Deuteronomy for not following him. So Deuteronomy clicks together the Old Testament for our better understanding. Uh, the second one, it is the Old Testament book that Jesus quotes the most, quoting only from it from being tempted by Satan. Raise your hand. If you're being tempted by Satan, you could defend yourself quoting only Scripture from Deuteronomy. That's pretty pretty tall order, isn't it? It's something else. That's the only book that Jesus decided to use whenever he was combating uh, with Satan over things. The next one, 69 times the ideas of possessing or inheriting the land is used. Why is that important? Because the idea of possessing or inheriting the land has a symbolic understanding for the church. Now, am I saying we are to interpret Scripture symbolically? Never. We are always to interpret it literally. But to say there are not types and antitypes that are in the Scripture is to not understand the Scriptures. Now, when I say type and antitype, who needs explanation on that? Does everybody know that? Everybody good? Okay. Here's what it is. A type would be a, a, a literal historical event or figure that is going on in the Old Testament, and then it communicates a spiritual truth and reality in the New Testament. Does that make sense? Let me give you a prime example. This is my favorite one to use. Children of Israel are in captivity. This will go along with us to give us a little bit of history of where we're at here with Deuteronomy. Children of Israel are in captivity. When they're in captivity, they cry out to Yahweh. Yahweh hears their cries. And if you remember, he goes through all the plagues with Pharaoh, has all these problems. Pharaoh's hard in his heart. He's not going to listen to anything that Yahweh says. And then at the very end, you have the death of the firstborn. But what kept people from dying? Does anybody remember what was required? The blood. If you don't apply the blood, your firstborn child will be taken. So notice, the children of Israel applied the blood. They are then set free from their bondage. Everybody see how this clicks together? You apply the blood. How do you apply the blood of Jesus? Faith. That's how you apply the blood of Jesus. You are then set free from your bondage. They then go out to a mountain. And what do they receive there? Ten Commandments. They receive the instructions for how they ought to live. Has everybody got that? Now here's why that's important. is because the Old Testament type sets up the complete argument against this idea of lordship salvation, that if you're not completely committed to the Lord, if you're not willing to forsake all things, that you're not truly saved. No, you apply the blood that's been provided for you. You're set free, and then we receive instructions for how to walk in fellowship with the Lord. Does everybody see that? It's for our Christian life. Now, here's the interesting thing that we're going to find out is, whenever the children of Israel got to the point of, do we, do we trust God and cross over into the promised land or do we turn around and, and hide with our tail tucked between our legs? Which, which way did they choose? Yeah, they ran, didn't they? They were scared to death. I'll wait and save that so we can talk about how that relates to your Christian life. It's very interesting. So that would be an example of the type is 
applying the blood, set free, receiving instruction for how to have fellowship with God. In our Christian life, we hear the gospel, we believe. When we believe, the blood is applied. We are then set free from our bondage of sin. We are then transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And then we begin to receive instruction for how to walk in fellowship with him. Now, pay close attention to this, okay? This is very important. And I don't know if you guys have this misconception or not because I just don't know enough about you guys. The law was never given as a means for how one is saved. Does everybody know that? God never gave the law and said, keep this or you're going to go to hell. That never happened, okay? What is the law? The law is how you have fellowship with Yahweh. It was never about whether or not you're accepted. They were accepted by the blood. They were accepted because of their belief. Salvation has always been by faith. It's always been by faith. When we look at Abraham in a few weeks, Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. At that moment, he is justified. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay, so what is the law? The law is never about do this, 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 and you're saved. That's called religion. That's not what God ever called us to. But here's what God is saying. If you want to have fellowship with me, you will walk in the way that I walk. Uh, Let's let's do a, a good example here. Mary Walker, what is one of your favorite like recreational things you like to do? What is it? What is it? Mow the lawn. You you need to come to my house. <laughs> Baby, we're having Mary Walker over today. Could you make up some tea? We'll get her one of those hats and put two things in there with the straws that come down and just send her to work. It'll be great. <laughs> Mow the lawn. So let's say that you are going to go have dinner with Aaron Rodgers, okay? And you're going to sit down, but the thing that you're into is mowing the lawn. Do you think Aaron Rodgers is into mowing the lawn? No, because you know that guy's hiring somebody to mow his lawn. That guy hadn't mowed a lawn in about eight years now, right? So he's not having to mess with it. Chances are they're not going to have much in common if that's going to be the topic. What's your favorite thing? Well, I like to play football. What's your favorite thing? I like to mow the yard. You've got to disconnect immediately. See how that works? But notice, what is Yahweh about? Holiness, righteousness, goodness, love, grace, justice. Those are the themes that he's about because that makes up the very essence of who he is and who he is overflows into what he does. Does that make sense? So what is he giving us by the law? The law is the written perfection of God teaching the Israelites how do you have fellowship with a perfect creator? This is how. This is what he looks to. This is how he puts in your hands if you want to live in harmony with him. And what you find is a lot of it has to do with dealing with sin before him so that the people stay humble and reliant upon him. That is how you have fellowship with Yahweh. So the the law was never meant to save people. The law was meant to have fellowship with Yahweh. It's for Israel. Does that make sense? Everybody good? Any questions about that? It's really, really important stuff. Okay, good. The next one. Uh, this is known as the common man's version of the law. While this doesn't spell out the law in detail, what it does do is it goes through the precepts of how they are going to live in a land. Now, this is why this is important. How long have they been wandering around in the wilderness? 40 years, okay? 
They have not known a place where, oh, we're going to set up camp and we're never going to move around again. Maybe some of us were like that in college, right? We just kind of floated around, lived in the backseat of our car for a little while, hung our socks out the window to drive and rolled them up so they wouldn't go anywhere kind of thing. But then after that, you finally got yourself an apartment or a house or you got married and you got established or something like that took place and you didn't have to move around anymore. This is totally a different paradigm shift for them. That's important. They were a wandering, traveling people. Now they are going to be an abiding and residing people who are going to be taking advantage of houses they didn't build, crops that they didn't plant, trees that they didn't plant, and all of it is going to be provided abundantly for them if they stay in fellowship with Yahweh. Okay, so it's a very different mindset. We have to think how they were thinking. The last one here, Moses begins in exalting God's faithfulness, addressing the heart, and then calling for the proper behavior. This is much like the pattern that we see in Paul's epistles. If you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, I love that book. First three chapters, all about who we are in Christ. The last three chapters are all a springboard. If this is who you are in Christ, This is now the new life that you get to live in Christ. You don't have to revert back to your old, comfortable, sinful ways that were completely not pleasing to God. You now get to live in the newness of life that Jesus provides. So first it talks about our identity, and the second part talks about how we move forward, how we participate in that life with Christ. Moses uses the same directive here. He wants to talk about who God is. He wants for the word to get into the heart of the people of Israel. And then he wants to call them to respond to it by the way that they live their lives. He keeps them separate, but they all flow together. Does that make sense? Now, here's one thing that we have to remember. The children of Israel do not have the Holy Spirit. Am I saying that he's not present among them? I'm not saying that. Am I saying that there were points where probably the Holy Spirit was placed upon them and then could be taken away again? We know that's a truth in the Old Testament. But the Holy Spirit did not take up residence in in them. That is something that is special only for the church age. The church age and its uniqueness, especially for two reasons, the indwelling Holy Spirit and the giving of spiritual gifts. Those are the two things that really set the church apart uh, as something that was never done at any other time. Any questions about that before we move forward? Excellent. Okay, good. What is the theme of the book? The theme of the book is how Israel can rest in God's blessings. That is important. How can Israel rest in God's blessing? Corey, what's up? Sure. Yes. You can ask me nicely and tip me $5 and I'll get you one. How's that? That'll be good. Yeah, no, I can get those to you. I've got those. Uh, I've been kind of giving them to people as we've had talks about spiritual gifts and they've asked about them just to go through. It's not a foolproof thing. It's on paper. It's not foolproof. The only way to determine what your spiritual gifts are is to begin serving and realizing what God has gifted you to do and what he's not gifted you to do. Uh, In high school, I had the worst time in drama and speech class because I couldn't get up in front of people and ever talk. It was just horrifying. It doesn't make sense now, though, does it? Doesn't make sense at all. It's like, you're just way too close to me now kind of thing. But back then, I'd be like, here's my report, you know, terrible. So The Holy Spirit blesses you, God blesses you, Christ gives you gifts in order for the edification of the church. I'm real excited about when we get to that point. Uh, But again, we're not there yet. But yes, if you'd like one, I give it to you. Again, it's not foolproof, but what it does is it kind of gives you a frame of reference and explains how spiritual gifts can be used in the body. And let me say something about that real quick before we move forward, because this is how important I believe that it is. If we try to do anything for the body outside of our spiritual gifts, it can't be pleasing to the Lord. 
Only God can please God. Therefore, only what God has given us is the only thing that will be pleasing to him. So until he sees us exercising the spiritual gift, because he's the one who's given it to us, and us operating in that way, you can't really say that you're being obedient. You're just modifying your behavior. You're just trying to be a good person. You're just being the warm body that filled the spot that nobody else would fill. And all that is just in vain. It really is. It's not what God's called the church to. He's called every one of us significantly to work together so that this thing will be a force to be reckoned with of truth and love. That's really what it is. So, see, I could preach on that all day. So, the basic outline of the book. This is actually three sermons and then some closing events. You say, oh, good grief, right? Uh, The first sermon, and this is really general. Uh, First one is from chapters 1 to 4. Second one is from 5 to 26. That's one of my sermons, right? And then the third one is from 27 to 30. And then the last three, four chapters that you have kind of wrap up the book and everything before they cross over. Um, Let's talk about this real quick. Application methods for Bible study. Primary and secondary application. How many of you are those foreign terms to? Everybody understands primary and secondary application? Let's just go over it real quick then. Uh, Those portions of Scripture address two disciples uh, or church-age believers who have been saved by faith alone in Christ alone. That is your primary application. That means that it is applicable to you. When we read in Ephesians, be holy as God has said, be holy as I am holy. That is for you and I. He's calling us to holiness. Why? Because we're church-age believers. Now, don't stone me, okay, but I'll just go ahead and stick a little nugget out there. I actually believe because of the audience of the Sermon on the Mount, I believe that the Sermon on the Mount is somewhat applicable to the church today because it's talking nothing about go to heaven when you die, and it's talking about everything, about having riches and being rewarded greatly when you come into the kingdom. The kingdom isn't just solely an Israelite thing. The kingdom is all something that is available for believers who are promised to rule and reign alongside Christ for their faithfulness. We'll appear before the judgment seat of Christ. How will we be judged? Judged upon our faithfulness. So there's something to be seen there. Blessed are you when those uh, persecute you and ridicule you for my name's sake. I tell you the truth. Great is your reward in heaven. Who's his audience at that time? Four disciples. Are they saved or unsaved? Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Do you know? Are they saved or unsaved? They're saved people. So now we have to sit here and we have to ask ourselves a question. This is probably more applicable. Sorry, sometimes I speak in tongues. This is more applicable to me than probably what I've ever given notice to before, even though it's in the Gospel of Matthew. Things you need to wrestle through and think about. So I think it's important. Um, Let's see here. So primary application would be things written to disciples or church-age believers that that are calling upon us to either think, be, or do type of things. Uh, secondary application is looking for the spiritual principle within the text that transfers to today without violating grace. Uh, For instance, you and I, we're not called to keep the law. We actually have fellowship with Yahweh through obedience to Jesus' commands. Didn't Jesus say, John 14, 21, if you love me, keep my commandments? It's interesting. Who was his audience there? Eleven of the disciples. He's telling already saved people, if you love me, you will do this. Well, if they're saved people, don't they love Jesus? Jesus didn't think so. That's interesting to think about. Jesus let them know they could come into a deeper love relationship with him by keeping his commandments. Now, is he talking about the Ten Commandments there? No. He's talking about the new commandments he's giving specifically, John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Very, very crucial, very, very important. Uh, So that would be an example. Secondary application. Why in the world would we go through an entire book, 34 chapters of Deuteronomy, and it all be secondary application? 
the first three things I gave you at the top. Examples, instruction, perseverance, and endurance gives us hope, teaches us not to crave after sin. There are secondary principles there telling us about who God is and our relationship to him that will keep us from that mess. So any questions about that? Okay, excellent. Now, the really nerdy stuff. Are we ready for that? Everybody see, uh, Mitch, do we have that map? This map, I think, is a little hard to see. Oh, that's real good. That's way better than the one we had a minute ago. Good job, Mitch. That's looking good. All right. So here's what I want you to see. Everybody see Mount Ararat up there? Top right-hand corner. Caspian Sea, just right to the left of it. Mount Ararat. There's a mountain range that's going on through there. That entire range is the Mount of Ararat. So we don't really know where the ark laid down at in that range, but somewhere along it, it's, it's, it's huge. Uh, so you go to the left of that, you notice you have this little body of water, little body of water down through the middle, and then right along here where the Tigris flows. Everybody see along there? Kind of up there in the, in the right hand, kind of in the little nook, here's the two rivers, and then probably right in here. One of the biggest discrepancies as far as the validity of the Bible has been its mention of the Hittite people. Are we familiar reading there, the, the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites, all those sites, all those Ite people that we like, right? And they, they roll their names off of all who all the inhabitants are in the land going on there in Canaan. The Hittites actually lived over in that section, but for the longest time, nobody could find anything about them, nothing at all. Couldn't find that they ever lived, couldn't find them on ancient documents, nobody's writing about them, nobody's talking about the Hittites. Whoa, there we go. Yeah. So this area right here, that would be the Hittite section there. But what's amazing is in the early 1900s, I think about 1913 to 1917, there was actually a German scholar who took some people over for an archaeological excavation. And when they went through this, they dug in that area and they found thousands and thousands and thousands of these clay tablets that because the sand had been over them, preserved them. Heat didn't mess them up. Of course, the rain never got to them because you saw little of it there anyway. But the elements were not able to get them because the sand had served to preserve them over and over. And what did they find when they read through these thousands of tablets? There were heaps of them. It was almost like somebody had cleaned out a law office and just threw all of the papers in a big pile. They found repeatedly the Hittite civilization. And what they saw was is it was actually receipts for transactions, contracts that people had written up, but it was all within the realm of Hittite civilization. When he brought this evidence to the forefront, all the liberal scholars against inerrancy shut their mouths quickly. It just stopped overnight. If you ever get a chance to read some sort of archaeological Bible, uh, archaeological uh, dictionary or something like that on a study on the Bible, it'll bring up the Hittite civilization. It's fascinating to look at. I can't even pronounce the guy's name because it's German and weird, but I don't know. But anyway, moving on. That's nothing against any of you guys if you're German. Uh, but... Uh, to find that was a, was a major, major feat, what, what, what they found. But here's something very interesting that they found. They found these treaties that had been lined up. And these treaties are what are known as suzerain-vassal treaties. Has anybody ever heard suzerain-vassal treaty? Anybody ever heard that? Nobody has. This is excellent. Here's what, does anybody know what a suzerain is? A suzerain is considered a high king. Okay, this would be someone who would be considered the principal king over a superpower. 
See, I didn't want to give this to you on the notes because I wanted you to have something to write down, okay? No lazy study here, right? Get you more coffee if you're, if you're fading out. Uh, but a suzerain is a guy who would be considered a high king. Probably the suzerain that we would think most readily about from what we know in Scripture would be Pharaoh. You spell it S-U-Z-R-A-I-N, I think it is. Suzerain is how you spell it, something like that. It's close enough. Suzerain, and he is a high king. Pharaoh would be considered a high king. At his time, he was considered the pinnacle of royalty over everything that was possibly known at that time. The second word you want to be concerned with is the word vassal, okay? V-A-S-S-E-L. And vassals are actually lesser kings. So it would be the idea of Pharaoh is over Egypt, but you got one guy that might be uh, in Libya, and you got one guy that might be over in Turkey, and you got another guy. And what you have is a treaty that is signed between these parties. Now, you might ask yourself, if you've got yourself being the highest king that you are anyway, why would you even bother to sign with any of these other people? Why not just go in and conquer them, take them over, and, and be done with it? How many people like to be forced to do anything? Anybody? No one likes to be forced to do anything. We hate that. Everything in our being rebels against it. So what's a better way in order to make something happen to go in your direction? You agree. You have a compromise. You come to the table, you bring everybody around, and you set up some give and take for everybody, okay? So, pause. In a suzerain vassal treaty, the suzerain would step forward and he would say, okay, here's what I'm going to do for you lesser kings. I'm going to provide you with protection. Make sure that you get plenty of food. I'm going to keep you safe. And if you have anybody that tries to harm you, you can guarantee that my forces will back you and take care of it. Now, is that good stuff? If you're a smaller king, and especially if you're a peasant guy churning butter all day, you're like, you know what? I'll probably take that deal. The lesser kings have promised in exchange to give their devotion and their allegiance to the high king in order to have this relationship work. So they all become subservient to him voluntarily in this relationship, and in exchange for that, he promises them peace and safety, protection, and the whole thing. Do we get that? Okay. When they found this in the Hittite treaties, they pulled this out, and they pulled out the book of Deuteronomy, and they go, oh my gosh, this is what Yahweh is doing in the book of Deuteronomy. Yahweh is the high king, and he is taking his vassal kings and he is promising them to bless them, love them, protect them, take care of them, provide for them, all of this stuff if they will just turn around and give allegiance to him. It is drawing them into a greater relationship. Now here's why this is important. Because this is also what is known as the Mosaic Covenant. Okay? Mosaic Covenant. M-O-S-A-I-C. And the Mosaic Covenant is the only covenant in Scripture that is conditional in nature. It is the only covenant in Scripture that is conditional in nature. All of the other covenants or contracts that Yahweh makes, He always makes them unconditional in nature. This is what I'm going to do for you, and it doesn't matter how much you sin and mess it up, I'm still going to fulfill my promise to you. We know that through the Davidic covenant. We know that through the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, we even know that through the new covenant, which has been ratified by the blood of Jesus, but has not been enacted yet. But it is the Mosaic covenant that stands out as the one that's unconditional. Some people actually call the Mosaic covenant the if-then covenant. If you will do this, then I will provide this for you. 
If you will obey me, then I will protect you from your enemies. Everybody familiar with that? Okay, so is there any questions about that? Okay, so here's what I would like us to do in the remaining 15 minutes that we have. I want us to go through the book of Deuteronomy, and I want you to label the sections of the suzerain vassal treaty structure. And so here's what I'm going to ask you to do in order to make it real simple. S, period, V, period, and then we'll do like one. Here's the first place. So, of course, chapter 1, verse 1, is going to be S, V, S, period, V, period, and this is known as the intro, verses 1 through 4. This is an introductory, introductory remarks pretty much to it. Suzerain vassal, SV, dash intro, and then you can just write verses 1 through 4. It's an introduction is what it is. Then, down, everybody see where verse 5 is. Notice it says, Across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law saying. Now, this is our introduction into the first sermon of the book of Deuteronomy. This would be S period, V period. And this is what is known as the historical prologue. The historical prologue. And this historical prologue will go from chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 4, verse 40. The historical prologue from 1 5 to 440. And let me go ahead and, and define for you what all this is. In the historical prologue, what it's going to do is it is going to establish and introduce to the nation the character of the high king. This is a recognition of who he is or what he has done as to the reason why he is superior in this relationship. So it is an introduction of him. You might say, well, Israel already knows about him. Understand this. We're talking about this is second generation from the, from the uh, uh, Exodus, not first generation. First generation against God, they're dead. So now this is second generation. Mitch, can we do this real quick? Do you care to scroll this over to about this section right here? Take us over to the Dead Sea and all that stuff. There we go, right in here. Uh, everybody see this? Uh, go down a little bit. Sorry, right here. Everybody see this blue section right here? Got here the, the Dead Sea is going to flow into the Jordan River and the salts, or I'm sorry, the Sea of Galilee flow down the, the Jordan River into the Dead. <laughs> Getting ready to have a seizure, man. Calm down. <laughs> but flow down into that being the Dead Sea. On this side, can you bring it down just a little bit? Thank you. Right here. This is what is known as the land of Moab. And this is where they are. They've wandered around and all this time through Egypt and everything, and they come around, and they come up this side, and they set up shop right here before they're going to cross over and go into the land. So they're set up in Moab. That's where we're at with the historical prologue. And this is where Moses has them camp out, and he gives them all of this stuff in the book of Deuteronomy. It's important to know where they are and where they cross over into. So this is the historical prologue. It introduces who the great king is. Now, if you take your finger, turn over to 440 where the historical prologue ends. And you'll notice it's the very end of that, uh, or close to the end of that chapter, forgive me. Chapter 41 through 49 don't really fit with the suzerain vassal treaty because it is setting aside cities for refuge for accidental deaths. That's kind of, that's kind of different compared to how most of these Hittite treaties were set up. But when you look at chapter 5, verse 1, you can write SV, S period, V period. 
dash. This is what is known as general stipulations. General stipulations. It's going to be a lot of overview type stuff. It's going to be a lot of specific, or sorry, not specific, grand scheme type deals that they're going to address. And this goes from 5.1 to 11.32. From chapter 5, verse 1 to 11.32. And of course, when you're done with that, general stipulations, 5.1 to 11.32, then you want to turn to 11.32. And you'll see there that we have the beginning of chapter 12, verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1, S period, V period, suzerain vassal, dash. And these are specific stipulations. We now go from the general to getting very specific about how they live life and how through the daily living of life they have fellowship with Yahweh. And this one's actually a huge chunk. It lasts from 12.1, where we start out here, to chapter 26, verse 15. It is from 12.1 to chapter 26, verse 15. This is known as specific stipulations. Up until you come to 11, uh, from 5.1 to 11.32 is general stipulations, a general overview type thing, but now Moses is going to move in 12.1 to specific stipulations. This will take you all the way to 26. 15, you've got some sections there on verses 16 through 19 that speak of the importance of devoting yourselves to these things. And then you get into chapter 27, verse 1. This is the next one of the suzerain vassal, S period, V period, blessings and cursings. Blessings and cursings. Start in 27, 1. At the time of those Hittite treaties, it would be, if you will devote yourself to me and stay faithful in your devotion to me in this treaty, I will bless you, I will love you, I will keep you, I'll provide for you, I'll protect you. All of those things is what the high king would did. It's, it would do. It's no different here from what Yahweh is doing. So this is blessings and cursings. It lasts from 27 verse 1 to 28 verse 68. From 28 verse 68. If you notice, chapter 28 is a long, long, long chapter. That's the one that has the cursings in it. And so now you're going to find, in fact, let me make sure I've got it written down correctly here. Chapter 20, let me see here. Sorry, chapter 30, verse 19. I want everybody to see this. It says, I call heaven and earth to, what's the word? witness against you today the idea of witness whenever a treaty or a covenant is made is crucial and so you'll want to underline that word witness and you'll want to write next to verse 19 s period v period and then write witness this is a witness something is going to testify god is god is putting his word out there and there are things that are going to hold him to his word So witness there at chapter 30, verse 19. The next one will be chapter 31, verse 19. Chapter 31, verse 19. Just over one chapter. Notice it says, Now therefore write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips 
so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. He actually had them commit the devotions in a song so that they would remember it. Sometimes we do that with Bible verses. I did that with the Greek alphabet to be able to remember it better. I have like a punk rock version of the Greek alphabet that helps me call it real quickly. So I'm not going to share it with you, though. It's mine. Uh, I wrote it. There's royalties involved. Um, but suzerain vassal, S period, V period, witness. You want to put there next to 3119 as a witness. And then chapter 32, verses 1 through 43. If you notice in the New American Standard, it is set apart in an indented fashion. The reason is, is because it is Hebrew poetry is what it's written as. And so it's set off, and you probably got a heading above yours. My heading says the Song of Moses. This is a song that's been put together. This is all going to serve as a witness, this entire song from verses 1 through 43. The whole thing serves as a witness about this. This is a song that has been documented for them to come back to as a witness. So those are the divisions of a suzerain vassal treaty. You have an introduction. You have a historical prologue that introduces the king. You have general stipulations and then specific stipulations that he lays down. And then you have blessings for abiding by those stipulations and cursings for denying those stipulations. And then you have a call for witnesses in order to verify the instructions that are given. Now, here's why this is important. How many tablets were there to the Ten Commandments? Ten. And how many commandments were on each tablet? Well, we know. Somebody say it. Raise your hand. It's okay. Not going to bite you. One, one commandment was on the tablet. Ten, five. Why five? What? Five on each side, but there are two tablets. What's that? I know this is math. Come on, guys. Everybody knows there's two tablets, right? Moses got real mad when he came down, saw the calf. Breaks them all up, right? The, the, the thing we had written with the finger of God, and Moses messes it up when he comes down the mountain. In doing that, what do they do? They take all those pieces and they put it where? Inside the ark, right? It's where the, tab, the testimony, the tablets of the Ten Commandments are held. But what's interesting is for the longest time, everybody thought, oh, that's easy. You got one tablet that's got five commandments on it. You got the other one that's got the other five. Or the first four deal with man's relationship with God, so there's four on one tablet. The other six are man's relationship with man, so there's six on the other tablet. I don't think that's the case. I think because of the essence of witness and how important that is, probably one tablet had those 10 words on it, or they're called the 10 words or the 10 sayings, and the other one had the exact same thing. Does anybody know why there would be duplicates of this? One for who? Emphasis, yes, but one for who? When you go get a mortgage at the bank, one for God, one copy for God, one copy for you. Isn't that interesting? Why? so that no one is fuzzy on the conditions that are being set up. Why is that important? If it was an unconditional covenant that was being made, it wouldn't be so much of an issue. You could forget it, go on, live your life, mess it up as much as you want, and you will suffer the consequences of that sin because that's what you cultivated. But it doesn't change God's faithfulness in bringing about what his word has said. But in an unconditional contract, or sorry, in a conditional contract, where it's contingent upon your devotion and behavior, here you go, read over this carefully. We got one too. Everybody see why that makes a difference? Because he wants them to know. In fact, if I recall correctly, 
isn't it whenever they set all of this up that Joshua is supposed to wipe down these huge stones with limestone, wash them white, and then he is supposed to write on them the commands that Israel is supposed to be done. And we're talking billboard-sized stuff at that time. We're talking ancient Hebrew billboards. Why? So that everybody would know what Yahweh expected. His word is paramount through this entire book. So, interesting stuff. Good stuff. Anybody have anything before we tie it up? No, we're good. Okay. We got two minutes. Let's read just a little bit of Deuteronomy. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, and Laban and Hazaroth and Dizahab. Now, anybody vacation in these places recently? No. In fact, some of these we don't know. Some of these we would sit here and go, well, it's the word Laban. I'm familiar with Laban, but is that that's a guy, that's not a place. Anybody know what's going on here, the very first thing that Moses is documenting? Why does he bring up all these places? I've said it a couple of times since I've been here. Because liars do not give details. If you lie about something, you're going to reply in generalities so that you don't get found out and you can't get pegged down. So you lie in generalities. Moses is specific. Here's where it was. We crossed this river. It was right after this. These were the cities surrounding it. Boom. Pinpointed. Why? Because he has nothing to hide. This is a historical event that took place. Notice it says here, verse 2, It is 11 days' journey from Horeb, by the way of Mount Seir, to Kadesh Barnea. How many days? 11 days. Now let's say that you and I had to get out and walk for 11 days. Is that a hopeless journey? (laughs) If I'm walking, it is. (laughs) In fact, it's very interesting. If I pull up my phone and I pull up my Google Maps on there, it it gives you the option of finding out how long it will take you between driving, riding a bike, and walking. And I've always thought the walking icon is the most useless thing in the world. I'm not, you know, someplace that takes you five minutes to drive, it takes you an hour and 15 minutes in order to walk. Forget that. Who's doing that, right? Take a cab or something. But here's what's interesting. 11 days journey. Verse 3. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him to give to them. Pause for a second. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt and they go to the mount to receive God's words, which we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks. When they do that, how long was the trip from there to where they needed to be? How many? It took them 40 years. How long was the trip? 11 days. Is 11 days hopeless? No. Is 40 years hopeless? Good googly moogly, right? In fact, I think that's the Hebrew there. Good googly moogly. A trip that should have taken 11 days took 40 years. Talk about an inconvenience. Next week, what we're going to look at is why. 
What took place to take an 11-day journey and turn it into a 40-year experience? Does that sound crazy to you? Oh, man, that sounds like wasted time. It sounds like nothing but a big waste of time. And see, here's the interesting thing, secondary application. What is, is that event going to teach us about how not to waste our time or how we can waste our time and it end up costing us much more than what we ever thought we'd get involved in? Very important. So hopefully that's enough of a teaser. And if you're here from Tom's class, I hope I didn't steal you out of it. So he's a pretty jovial character as it is. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Deuteronomy. Thank you, God, for the structure that you've put together. Thank you, God, for all the nerdy things that you put in there that, uh, that, Father, we can research and find and see how you've put it in such ways as to where you wanted to communicate with people uh, in such a way to where they understood, that they grasped it, that they got it, because you wanted to give them the best possible life that they could live on earth, and that is a life that is in fellowship and response to you, Father. Uh, I pray, God, that that be stirred up in our hearts, that we realize what you've given us in your word provides us with the best life possible, and we have the new life that Christ has secured for us. And so, God, for that, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys so much. Well, real quick, did anybody have any questions? Are we good? Okay, Packers don't play till 7.30, so we're okay. You can ask questions. <laughs> it's like you got to be home in 30 minutes. i got to get my socks off and get in the chair. <laughs> so, okay, making sure. Thanks.